to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. Tonight, we're once again deviating slightly from our normal format. Uh, we had such a good response last week from our discussion on false prophets. We actually want to revisit that conversation and talk a little bit more about some things we wanted to talk about last week, but we, we didn't get to it. Uh, so uh, tonight we're going to revisit the gospel reading from last week on false prophets and talk a bit more about how this plays out uh, in our current context in the church. So let's just, uh, just to start, let's look at the two main scripture lessons that we looked at last week, just to sort of set the stage again. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now that we sort of brought that up as an introduction to um, last Sunday's gospel reading from Matthew 7. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we emphasized last week that it's the fruits of these false teachers that that are telling that show. Not necessarily their good works, because here they talk about doing many mighty works and casting out demons in Jesus' name and things like that. So on the outside, we might look at a false prophet and think, wow, he's, he's, he's a true believer. Look at the things he does. But it's the fruits of his teaching, which, so what do the hearers believe? That's right. So that's one of the things we focused on last week was why false teaching in the church can be so dangerous. And we talked about some of the fruits that these false teachings can bring about. Um, and today I I thought maybe we could focus on what false teaching looks like in the context of the church today. So like, so for instance, I had a really interesting, um, conversation with someone online about, um, what the Lutheran church considers to be heresy. And if there's a distinction between heresy and false teaching, are they one of the same things? Uh, is there a difference between being a heretic and just being an orthodox or heterodox? And how do we kind of classify these different kinds of false teachings within the church today? So labels and names and accusations to boot, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I know some people who are really careful when using the word heretic. They don't want to apply it to very many people. They say, okay, only the people who deny whether it be like the core doctrines or deny the divinity of Christ or something like that, 
those are heretics. All the other Christians, while they might have false teachings, um, we don't call them heretics. We call them something else. Right. Uh, so we call them unorthodox or heterodox or things like that. So mm-hmm. let's define some. Do you want to define some terms? Let's define some terms. Okay. So Sounds good. I, a heresy is something that deviates from the core teaching of a group. Usually we it refers to religious things, right? Okay. But you can probably have heretics in engineering. I, <laughs> right. I, you know, they some engineer may think that uh, that engineer is a heretic because he <laughs> believes a certain mathematical formula that's been disproven or something. But usually we think about religious things and a heretic is one who deviates in a big noticeable way. Okay. Now, a, a lot of my thinking about life um, we tend to think in respect to an on-off switch, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I remember many years ago in an abnormal psych class that the professor drew a line across the board and said, this is complete unhealth mentally, and this is complete health. He said, but we all fall somewhere along that line. Mm. So it's not like you're either mentally ill or mentally healthy. It's not on-off. There's all these gradations. So think of it like a rheostat, the, the knob you turn to bring up your dining room lights. It's not necessarily, I mean, it can be on or off, but there's also this whole gradient, right? Right. So a lot of this false teaching, we sort of have to think about in a, in a gradient way. And some of it is more dangerous than others. Mm-hmm. And so a heretic is one who deviates in a big way from the, the body's teaching. So you've cranked that rheostat up pretty high. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's noticeable. There's no, really no question about it. From the, from the core group, there's no question. That teaching is wrong. That's a heresy. Right. Now, it gets a little more complicated when the rheostats just turn a little bit. And we think, well, is that terrible? Right. So we have other terms that we use. Um, first of all, let's start with a good term, orthodoxy. Orthos means straight. And doxa is that which is held to a belief or a doctrine. Okay. Okay that Greek, Greek docane to hold to. So someone who's orthodox, they have a straight teaching. That's simple. Someone who's unorthodox, well, then their teaching isn't so straight. Mm -hmm. And someone who's heterodox, again, Greek word heteros means other or another. So a heterodox teacher would have a teaching that's another teaching. It's a different teaching. Doxa opinion hetero, other, unorthodox, unstraight, orthodox, straight, okay? Are we, are we confusing everybody yet? <laughs> Probably. Probably. And, and just all these words came out in different uses and meanings. And, and, and I think for, some, you know, for most of us, we don't really, really want to look at another person who claims to be Christian and say, well, well, you're a heretic. Right. I mean, I used that term once. I heard some theology I didn't like, and my friend rebuked me and said, no, no, no not a heretic he's just heterodox or unorthodox right yeah i i know we we tend to think in these kind of binary terms and it's it's kind of hard not to so consider the gospel reading that that we just went through um you know paul is warning against or it's not paul uh there's a warning against um false teachers here right jesus yeah jesus is warning against false teachers and um so Given that warning, we're kind of inclined to try to find who the false teachers are. It, it, it does appear to us like an on-off switch, right? Either you're a false teacher or you're not. Right. And we have these really strong warnings against false teachings. 
And so um, there's an importance in trying to figure out who these people are, who Jesus is talking about here, right? Yeah, and I think we have a, a little bit of help here when he talks about their fruits. We're to identify the teaching. That's how we identify the false teacher. Right. Okay? Right. Let's, let's keep the, the horse before the cart. If we hear something that isn't right, then we then we'd have to deal with it and think about it. Right. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no. I, I was just thinking back to this distinction um, between someone who gives a false teaching and a false teacher, properly so-called, perhaps. So, like, for instance, um, the example that came to mind as we were prepping, uh, famously, Paul had to rebuke Peter for his kind of Judaizing tendencies uh, early on in the history of the church, right? Yeah, do, do you want me to read that? Yeah, yeah, we have it here, sure. Okay, Galatians 2. But when Cephas, now that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, this is Paul talking. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is harsh language. It is. So obviously we wouldn't call Peter the Apostle a false teacher, <laughs> right? No, but, but, but apparently Paul did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, here he's clearly teaching something or doing something that's not in step with the gospel, and it requires a rebuke from Paul. Right, So what, and, and the big problem here is that, is that Peter was falling back into not eating with Gentiles, which is an Old Testament rule, because he feared the circumcision party, and the circumcision party were the people who were in the church, but were also insisting that the Old Testament rites and religious rules be followed. Right. So by by Peter acting this way, he's saying that, oh yeah, we have to follow the Old Testament rules and regs. Right. That's the false teaching. Right. And this was significant enough that it required a council to get this sorted out, right? The Council of Council of Jerusalem, kind of the first assembly of the church to figure out what was the right doctrine and what wasn't. Yeah, don't think about it. We have all this hindsight and, and we have these wonderful verses like, let no one judge in respect to a new moon or a Sabbath celebration. Mm-hmm. You know, these are a shadow of things to come, the substances of Christ. We have all that. We've had time. We've had, you know, a couple thousand years to hammer it out and think about it. Where they were moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Jesus uh, spoke the parable about not putting um, new wine in old wineskins. Right. Right. You, the, the wine expands; it bursts. The already expanded skin, you lose both. Don't put a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment; it'll tear and make it make it worse. And that's the whole point. You can't continue in the Old Testament rules and regulations if you're going to be a New Testament church. Right. Right. So this error was serious enough that. Um, it required uh, a council for correction, kind of similar to the way the other early heresies in the church required councils for, for correction as well. Yeah, let's get everybody together and, and hammer it out. Yeah. And so, so there's a lot of takeaways here. Uh, I think first and foremost, this kind of illustrates the importance of scripture as the thing that norms all of our doctrine. Because That's eventually what Paul points back to here, right? Is that he was out of step with the gospel message and 
that's the thing we ultimately stick to as as Christian people here. Yeah, and that fits in with this verse, Galatians 5. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified or declared innocent or righteous by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Right. So you're severed from Christ. That's why he says that he, he stood condemned. Right. He's severed from Christ. That's That's harsh. Yeah. Yeah. So again, kind of going back to your reestat idea, and I, I think that is helpful. It, it it seems that it's hard to discern and apply these hard and fast labels to specific people because some people can fall into periods of false teaching and then be corrected. And um, so that kind of muddies the water a bit, so to speak. Right, because Peter, I mean, obviously, we regard him as a great leader in the church. He was right. wrong at this point. Now we learn something else very important here too. If you see your brother in a sin, go to him privately. Right. Talk to him. That's what Jesus tells us, right? Right. And and if we see someone in a false teaching, go to him. You know, don't 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 make it a big public stink. Go to the person and say, Hey, you know, what you said doesn't fit with this section of First Corinthians or the gospel or whatever. You go to him to correct him. And and this is one of the defining points in whether or not someone is a heretic is where they refuse admonishment, mm. right? Yeah, that's the, right. There's an obstinacy in them that that puts them, you know, the, you know, my mind's made up, don't bother me with the facts type of thing. And that's what cements this idea of them being a false teacher, false prophet. That's a really good point. Because certainly at some point, and I assume just about every pastor's life, they've said something from the pulpit that probably isn't true, or it's, not, it's out of step not. with... Not me. <laughs> right. You're the exception. Else. I'm the exception. Else. <laughs> I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have. Yeah. And, and, I, and so certainly one one instance of this doesn't make you a false teacher. And no. so this idea that you've introduced, there's kind of um, an unrepentant flavor to being a heretic. You've been called out for it, rebuked, and you refuse to correct the error. You refuse to repent. And, and you, you also refuse to listen to the clearer sections of Scripture. And that's very important. One of the, and we've talked about this many times. One of the big principles that we hold to is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're misinterpreting one point of Scripture and brothers come and show us, well, according to these other 27 verses, you're looking at this wrong, then, okay, if, if, if we're repentant and we're humble, we're going to listen to them. Right. It's the arrogant person who thinks they have nothing to learn. Right, right. No, that's a good point. And that's what gets you into heresy when you think you can't be taught or you think you're infallible. Right. And perhaps we should define that word from a Lutheran perspective. Because I I know the word heretic can take on different meanings depending on what church body you're in. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Rome uses the term pretty loosely uh, and specifically in the sense that if you disagree with some stated dogma of the church, then you're you're a heretic, regardless of the importance or primacy of the doctrine. Anything that disagrees with official church teaching would be a heresy, according to uh, Rome. And of course, we don't we don't think of it that way in our Lutheran circles, right? There no. there are people that we're not in communion with, who we clearly wouldn't call a heretic. Correct. So, Luther was called a heretic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and excommunicated. Yes. So and in fact, if you look at uh, the Roman Catholic Church, there were like these specific orders that were set up to combat specific heresies. And so um, there was a, a specific order that was set up to kind of uh, 
put down and control the the Reformation in the in the Roman Catholic Church, yes. and you see these with with other uh, uh, orders as well. So the the, the Dominican order, um, which I went to a Dominican school when I was living in Ottawa, um, they were set up to combat the heresy of Albigensianism, which was this weird like dualistic heresy oh. uh, that was okay. set up in the medieval church. But anyway, you you see these different definitions of heresy in these different church bodies. And so there, there are people that we are not in communion with that we clearly wouldn't call heretics. Correct. So um, people like I, the, like the Wisconsin Synod, if you're an LCMS Lutheran, we're not right. in communion with them, but obviously like we're not going to call them heretics. No, they're, they're good Lutheran folk who have differences on a couple um, doctrinal points. Then that, that doesn't allow us to have full altar and pulpit fellowship. Exactly. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people that we certainly would call heretics so um i'm thinking people who explicitly deny the divinity of christ or uh like a jehovah's witness or or mormons right uh th- those people are clearly falling into grave theological error right and and what doctrine specifically do you want to look at those points now will yeah let, do you mind if we go ahead and define uh heresy first before we get into that and that's a good place to go from here yeah I, I think just kind of a general broad description would be someone who holds to a doctrine that differs from the main body and and we would say that that has then put them in in spiritual peril great can we say that is that that sounds good loose enough but tight enough yeah kind of yeah a, i think that's good yeah and it's not a, it's not a word that we that we use a lot and it and and we don't want to be derogatory towards someone we want to if we know someone who has a, what we consider to be a heretical teaching, we want to go to point that out to them from Scripture. Right. And, I, and I have spent lots of time over the years witnessing to people who belong to denominations that we consider aren't Christian. Right. They, they think they are, and, and I've tried to very gently show them Scripture to the point to bring them back. Right. Right. And just to add to that, Gerhard adds a few uh, criteria so uh, first, the person has to be baptized into the church. Which, so, yeah, okay, so we're not talking about the unbeliever. Exactly. That's the point. We're not talking about someone who's outside the pale of Christianity, um, yes. or at least they weren't outside the pale of Christianity. Yes. They may be now, but they weren't. Right. Okay. Right, okay. exactly. The second criteria is that they err in the faith. They have some sort of theological error. Yeah. That's kind of broad. That's the point. And that number three is that the error conflict directly with the very foundation of the faith. And this is kind of, I think, the point that you were getting at. Yeah. What doctrines are attacked by these false teachers? You want to continue? Are there any more? Um, The fourth criteria he adds is that the error be added malice and uh, they have to be obstinate in their belief. And that's what I mentioned earlier, that they're just not listening. They're hard-headed. They're not repentant. They're not willing to listen to the the brothers or sisters tell them about their error okay. exactly it's important. it's important right and the last criteria is that they stir up dissension and scandals in the church and they rend its unity okay so those are the five criteria gerhard gives as uh, uh for for being a heretic yeah and that and those all make sense those all those all work that the person holds a belief that causes division they're not listening to scripture they're not willing to repent uh and it's and it's an important doctrine Right, that that gets to my point, right? Yep, yep. So let, let's dig into which of these doctrines seem to most often be the target of these heretical attacks. Because we're getting, we're still talking about false 
teachers and false prophets. Yes. And the point is, if they're a false teacher or false prophet, they're, they're teaching something that's dangerous to the faith. And these are often concentrated on very important things like right. takeover. Like uh, the nature of Christ and right. his humanity or divinity. Yeah, that's been attacked early on, um, even even in Jesus' day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, you, you call yourself the son of God, you make yourself to be equal with God. You're not, mm-hmm. is what the, the opponents of him said to him. Right. They, they attacked his divinity right off the bat. Right, right. And we see that with the Arian heresy as well. And, and we see kind of different flavors of these Christological heresies come up in the early church. So um, Pelagianism comes or, or Nestorianism in this case comes to mind. Right. That, he, that, um, that's the plywood, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, so here's the divine nature. Here's the human nature. And they're sort of glued together like, like plywood. Yeah. Or that Christ is two distinct persons yeah. and not just one person. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, what, what's the danger in these Christological heresies? Why, why is it so important that we get the nature of Christ right because he's god he's sinless and his death counts for more than just his own death because he's human he does it in our place mm-hmm. and once you remove either his humanity or his divinity it falls apart right this is the heart of what we believe we believe in jesus born of the virgin true God, true man who bleeds and dies for us. And this is what the devil and all false teachers want to get us away from. Right. Christ. Right. Right. So if you don't understand who Christ is, everything else in Christianity kind of falls apart. Right. So, you know, if you're, if you're waging war against another army and, and you see a whole bunch of their artillery centered in one place, you're going to drop your bombs on their, most important point, mm-hmm. their most important loci, and that and that of course is what is what the devil does. And this in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul writes, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." So there, Christ, this that title, Christos, he doesn't he doesn't say Jesus. Now you. We don't say Jesus means his human part and Christ means his divine part. We don't say that. Right. But but the Christ, okay, the mm-hmm. Christ is the one who came to bleed and die for our sins. The, the Christ is the one who's anointed by God. So the main point of the faith is that Christ, the Christ, came and died for us. He was buried and rose. The Christ promised is God and man. Right. So these other doctrines, his, his death on the cross— that's brought into question or not the historicity of it, but the implications or, or the reason for it. Right. Exactly. And I kind of like the illustration you gave was we were prepping today. It's kind of like a web, right? This web of beliefs where if we were going to place the most important belief, it would be that Christ died for our sins. That's in the very middle. That's, yeah, that's yeah. the foundation of the whole thing. The God, right? man, the God, man, Christ dies for our sins. Right. And rises. That's the heart of our faith. That's why Paul said, when I was with you, brothers, I wanted to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. That's the heart of our faith. Right. And so some of these other, what we might call secondary doctrines, are attached to this core doctrine uh, 
some more closely than others, right? Can I and, wax a little philosophical for a second? Please. In our Western thought, we think very in a very linear fashion. Uh, think about your shopping list. Okay, point one, point two, point three, point four, point five. Western people think very methodically, very chronologically, um, very much in order. The biblical mindset isn't so, not so much. It's there's circular talk and 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 not circular reason, but uh, in in the Old Testament we have what we call Hebrew parallelism, where the the writer will repeat himself and then repeat himself. We see this in Genesis already, where the story's told and it's told again. So. In a way, we think about these doctrines, we shouldn't think, okay, this is the most important one, then there's number two, three, four, going down to number 128, which, well, if you don't believe that, it's not that important. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't think of it that way. These are all interconnected, and all and all of them have to do with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Mary, who bleeds and dies on the cross to forgive us our sins and right. rises from the dead. Right. So all, all doctrine ends up being important as it links us to Christ. Right. Okay, and, and this, I think, is kind of the tension when it comes to the discussion of like what we consider a primary doctrine, what we consider secondary, what we consider heresy. It seems that a lot of these other what we might consider on the surface to be secondary doctrines are at least in some way connected to the more primary ones. Okay, can I, I just had this flashback to my dad who's been gone for a couple and a half decades. He was talking about uh, insurance uh, payment for people who lose toes. <laughs> okay. Okay. My dad and I had a lot of conversations, but he said, if you, if you lose a little toe, that's not really, not really worth much from the insurance company. But if you lose a big toe, it can be because it, it can affect the way you walk. Mm-hmm. We tend to think about doctrines that way. Well, that one's a little one. It's not that important. Oh, but that one's big and it really is. Right. And in some ways I get it. But but to talk about primary and secondary, it's a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Because why are we wrong on a secondary doctrine? What's wh- Where did that come from? Right. What's right. the there's, source? There's probably a deeper root there than just disagreeing about some, you know, seemingly unimportant thing, right? It, right. it all goes back to something more essential. And, and so, yeah, so, so uh, one that comes to mind is like um, a lot of Christians in the Protestant world deny like um, baptismal regeneration. Okay, right? just a brief interruption here for a second. We talked about councils addressing theological questions, mm-hmm. and we talked about um, how the church responded. And I always found it interesting in the creeds, I believe, you know, in one baptism for the remission of sins. So that must have come into question very early on. Now, please continue. Yeah, so that to me is one that a lot of Christians seem to classify as a secondary doctrine, one that's not so important, one that we can kind of charitably disagree about, and it's not that big a deal. Um, But as you mentioned, it is in the creed, right? One baptism for the remission of sins. It seems that if you deny baptismal regeneration, it seems difficult that you would be able to affirm a statement like that. And not only that, that also seems to have some implications about justification and the nature of faith and all these other things that we consider to be much more important. Right. right. So do you want me to launch into my Go thoughts? for it. Go okay. For it. So it, it's fascinating. If you regard faith as a matter of the intellect and the will, then, then infant baptism doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't because little babies can't think and they haven't developed their wills and all that stuff. Right. But 
if you regard faith as a matter of spiritual regeneration, well, then infant baptism makes sense. Mm -hmm. And also one baptism for the remission of sins makes sense in the same way that Christ doesn't die repeatedly. Okay? He doesn't die over and over and over again. His one death on the cross was sufficient payment for all the sins of all people of all time. Your one baptism for the remission of sins, that's a historical reality. Right. And, and when you fall away from the faith, it doesn't change the fact that you were baptized for the remission of your sins. Mm-hmm. You've decided to be, oh, another word we maybe didn't define was apostate, where you leave the church. Mm-hmm. But that's, that doesn't invalidate the baptism. Right. It, it, it's like someone put a million dollars in your bank account. Well, you can tear up your, your debit card. It doesn't change the fact that the million dollars is still in your bank account. Right. Okay. Right. You've, just, you've just walked away from it. So... Um, now, a huge thing is, and, and you know, Peter says, baptism now saves you. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought we were saved by faith. Right? Right. That's, That's the, the objection you hear. Yep. Yeah. First off, I'll say, yes, we're saved by faith in Christ. But can, can I say, can I quote Romans ten seventeen? faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Can I say that hearing the word of God saves you? Right. Can I say that? Yes, you can. Absolutely. Okay. So what I've done is I've taken a verse. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So the word of God gives me faith. Now, if I've left faith in the, in, within the, the circle of the intellect and the will, then I sort of get my reason going and I hear God's word and I debate whether or not it's true and then I make a decision for Jesus. Right? Right. Or, or if the Holy Spirit's always accompanying God's word... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, what is it about baptism? We've never said that it's some, uh, well, the the Latin phrase is, you know, that it, well, I'll translate it, that it operates by operation. Mm -hmm. It's not some mechanical thing that you baptize someone and then automatically or mechanically they're saved. It's the fact that in baptism, it's not just water only, but it's water connected to God's word. Right. Which should make your mind go back to Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If it's the Word of God alone, or if it's the Word of God with water, how does adding water to it somehow make it less effective? Right. That's the question. Right. So if someone denies infant baptism or the efficacy of infant baptism, they're denying the fact that it's God who saves us, and they're denying the efficacy of the Word. Mm. See, and suddenly that sounds like a much bigger deal than just denying infant baptism. It does, doesn't it? Because if you're denying the efficacy of the word, how then do you come to faith? You come to faith by some sort of spiritual machinations in yourself or some sort of rationalizations to try to determine whether or not God is real. Right. And that's different than spiritual regeneration. Right. Right. And, and there there also seems to be, in the denial of infant baptism, perhaps... Uh, an implicit acceptance of another heresy that was clearly defined in the early church of like Pelagianism, right? This idea that uh, babies are born blameless and they don't fall under the guilt of sin. Right. right? And then, it, and then you, you have know, semi-Pelagianism that you have to cooperate with God in conversion and things like that. Exactly. But that's a denial of the sum. You know, behold, I, I was born, I was born a sinner sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Right. 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 And so this is yeah this is where it gets tricky in my mind because um, it, it does seem to me that we want to be careful and a bit withholding about 
who we call a heretic or what beliefs we call heresy. But it's really important, it seems to me, to acknowledge that even some of these doctrines that we might call secondary have implications and stem from some sort of denial from what we might call a core doctrine. Right, the efficacy of the word. Right. And that, and 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 the fact that it is God who gives us faith. Luther phrased it so well in the Catechism: "I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or come to Him. Right. But the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel. Whether I was a little person or a bigger person, it's the Holy Spirit's work who calls me by the gospel. Right. And and we regard in in our church, we've hammered this out quite well that um, baptism is an application of the gospel." Mm-hmm. Okay, it's God's word applied to a person. Right. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Are we going to deny that? So we we kind of would use maybe the term within our circles of saying heterodox or unorthodox rather than heretical. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just being polite. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough, yeah. But it's monergism, monos being one, ergos being work. It's monergism. It's God alone who saves us. Right. And when we come to that realization cognitively, it's very humbling. Mm-hmm. And who wants to be that humble to admit that they can't even decide for God, right? Right, right. Yeah. C.S. Lewis talked about the arrogance of people who think that they can choose God. Mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Right. Now, what comfort, when you and get right to the heart of it, what comfort to know that if you have faith, it's because God has called you and through his word worked faith in your heart. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's important to understand. And so maybe to kind of close and, and sum us up today, it seems like there's this line that we have to walk. We want to be fully aware of the dangers of false teaching, including the false teachings that we might consider to be less important than the core doctrines. We need to be fully aware of the dangers of, of false teaching. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we also want to have a sense of charity towards our Christian brothers and sisters who disagree with us on some yeah, of these I, things. I live by the, the, or I try to, at least I tell myself this, uh, you never win an argument. Hmm. Right, you you may make some points, but you've you've alienated a person usually with an argument. So, what what doctrines are often attacked? The deity of Christ, the virgin birth, mm-hmm. and the big one, of course, is justification, his his atonement. And when we start adding to that, then we're in trouble. Right. So these are things we're attacked, and that's why in the creeds it very clearly spells out. Trinitarian doctrine, Christ dying, all that stuff, because these are the important things. And these are these are the things the devil wants us to shift us on. He wants right. us to get away from Christ crucified. So, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't true God and maybe he sinned and things like that to, to see sow some seeds of doubt about the sinlessness of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, his vicarious atonement as he bleeds and dies on the cross, taking away the sins of the whole world. Right. Right. Stay on guard. Yeah. Definitely. Especially given that the devil can work his way in in a kind of sneaky fashion through some of these things we don't see as important. But ultimately, they become attacks on the primary things. Yeah. And that this God is gracious 
And at the end of the day, when we trust in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. If we've taken some wrong theological steps along the way, God forgives us those wrong theological steps. But the problem is that some of them are dangerous. Right. Right? Right. Okay. They can shipwreck the faith if you're not careful. They can. They're, they're, and, and it's always these big things that seem to come into question. Um, scripture. That's another mm-hmm. big one, right? Mm-hmm. If you start to doubt the inspiration or the inerrancy of Scripture, and I, I, and you and I have laughed about this. People said, "Well, did God really say that?" And whom are they quoting? <laughs> They're quoting Satan. They're quoting <laughs> Satan. I, you know, I just I, my I'm, my mind is boggled by this. That people will say to a pastor, "Well, did God really say that?" Right. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. <laughs> you know, and and you're quoting the devil, and I don't say that to them because I'm trying to witness to them. <laughs> But they're quoting that. But see that that that's the really the original sin was not listening to God's word. Mm-hmm. It was disobedience. It was arrogance. It was a, a a selfishness. But it demonstrated itself in not listening to God's clear word. Right, right. And ultimately, that's what most false teachings come down to. Yeah, it's and that's why the the obstinacy point obstinacy point is a big one because if 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 I as a Christian know someone who's teaching something false and I want to show them from God's word, well, if they're obstinate, they don't want to listen to it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Any any uh, other closing remarks before we end tonight? Uh, thanks be to God that He is gracious and merciful to us fallible people. Mm-hmm. We err in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we haven't done. But Christ, the shed blood of Christ, forgives us all those sins, all of them. Indeed. Okay? When we look to him in faith, those sins are gone because he bore them in his own body on the tree almost 2,000 years ago. Right. right. And if I live long enough, I'll, get, I'll be able to say 2,000 years ago <laughs> instead of just almost. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I have a call to close us tonight. Oh, great. Thanks, Will. And then we bow our heads and pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we most heartily thank you that you have caused us to come to the knowledge of your word. We pray you graciously keep us steadfast in this knowledge until death, that we may obtain eternal life. Send us now and always pious pastors who faithfully preach your word without offense or false doctrine and grant them long life. Defend us from all false teachings and frustrate the counsels of all those who pervert your word, who come to us in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves, that your true church may always be established among us and be defended and preserved from such false teachers. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.